before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Grant Williams podcast. Joining me shortly is James Block, the man behind Dirty Bubble Media. Um, and we are going to be talking once again about crypto. And it's funny how uh, you know, these crypto conversations seem to come in bunches. But James has been doing some extraordinary work digging into things like Tether, things like Binance, and most notably, perhaps recently, into FTX. And we're going to talk about uh, how he got into that and the things that he's found out and how he sees things developing from here in in what is obviously a very noisy um, and news-heavy space right now. So trying to get a bit of perspective on on where the skeletons might lie and what might happen next, I thought, might make a bit of sense. So with that being said, and without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with James Block. James Block, welcome to the podcast. I'm thrilled to have you join me. I am equally thrilled to be here. Well, it's a funny old world, and I appreciate you doing this. You know, we're recording this late one evening, and uh, you know, you've had a full day at work, so I, I appreciate you doing this. And, and you know, the, the clue is there that, that this is not your job. This is kind of a, a hobby slash fascination slash obsession. And uh, you had a, a great chat with uh, a mutual good friend of ours, Dimitri Kofinas, recently on Hidden Forces. And I would urge people listening to this to go and check that conversation out in terms of getting your backstory, because it's, uh, it's a really interesting one. But for the interest of brevity, and so that we can kind of talk about the meat of what I want to get to today, I'm going to skip over that and allow people to, to go back and listen to that. It's safe to say that you know, you're, you're a medical uh, professional, uh, a resident. Is that right? Is that resident? I always forget what the correct yeah. term is. Yeah, it's different in the US. Yeah, it's a medical resident. Yep. Yeah. But what I want to talk about is what was it that took you down this investigative journey into the the, 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 the bowels of the crypto universe? What was it that first <laughs> attracted you to that? And, and how, did, how did those breadcrumbs fall for you? Yeah. So, uh, I had no interest in crypto or really knowledge about the the space until maybe a year and a half ago. And uh, I don't remember how I happened on it, but I found out about Tether, which I believe you've talked about a little bit in the past, which, you know, I, I come from a, a background, a family that was a lot of uh, my, my grandfather's accountant. My dad was a, a a lawyer and they would, you know, talk about investments every Sunday when we would go to visit them. So I kind of grew up around thinking about money and finance and investing. And I've always had a particular kind of strange obsession with fraud. Um, going back to even when I was a young kid, I, I thought Enron was fascinating even when I was, I mean, right. probably too young to even care, frankly. Right. I was a weird kid. Uh, but yeah, so I've always been fascinated with that. And um, when I find out that there's somebody out there claiming to have you know $60 billion in money that they can't show you, and that this apparently is like the underpinnings for this entire, you know, shadow economy that's that's operating outside of the bounds of the law and outside of, you know, regulatory jurisdictions and offshore. I mean, it's like it's like catnip for somebody who's interested in fraud. <laughs> right. So, yeah, and that's that's really what initially drew my interest. And I I never thought I would be, you know, a year and a half later sitting here talking to you about this, like 
uh, it's just sort of happened. I'm still sort of processing how it happened, but I don't know. It just kind of, it kind of gradually built from, you know, reading other people's investigations and their analyses to doing my own digging. And it just became more and more involved. And over time I built skills that made me, I think, decent at it. And that's where I am now. So. Well, it's, it's fascinating to me because, you know, like you, I, I, I was just just curious about this stuff, and it was tether that caught my eye. You know, I, I, I was I was skeptical about Bitcoin, but I didn't hate it. I didn't really care about it. Um, I was skeptical about the promises that were being made and the assumptions being made and stuff. But when I saw tether as well, I, I just couldn't ignore that. I couldn't just let that go. And so, you know, I dug deep into that, and the more I dug, the crazier it got. Uh, but but you know what? What I guess I found the most difficult to to get my head around was the people that would just defend this thing because you know in your summation of it just there which was a perfect summation of it you know this this 60 billion dollar black box that operates outside the law and they can't show where the money is in a normally functioning world that would be enough right if someone told you (laughs) that that was what this thing did and there was no proof of the reserves and they and they wouldn't have an audit that used to be enough but it isn't so 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 walk me through as you got sucked into the world of Tether, how the tentacles of this kind of spread out into FTX and Alameda and Binance and all those other kind of mysterious things, one of which has fallen spectacularly and others which are hanging by a thread. The first thing I'll say is that I think it was my disbelief, the disbelief that you just alluded to in your own discovery and, and investigation of Tether that is really kind of what drove me to become so obsessed with this stuff was because when you tell people this makes no sense and then they go, no, it's fine. Everything's okay. And they don't listen to obvious, obvious things that should be red flags for anybody. That, that for me was what really pushed me to start taking this more and more seriously and saying, well, maybe if I just show them a little more evidence, they'll listen to me. Right. Um, Unfortunately, that's not really how it's turned out, but it's still been fun. Um, So, you know, uh, the history of tether is, is a very interesting one. It goes back. It's one of the earliest, uh, uh, cryptocurrencies created, right? And it's it's background in being created by uh, some interesting characters like Brock Pierce, whose history alone is just so fascinating. Yeah. I mean, yeah. like, these are all people, like, that's the amazing thing is you have, like, you know, one of the founders is this plastic surgeon who quit because he says he didn't, uh, what was his thing? He was like, I don't, I wanted to make women more beautiful and they didn't want to be as beautiful as I wanted to make them or something was his, like, excuse. <laughs> and then he ends up selling, like, pirated DVDs and then goes pivots from that to founding this, you know, $60 billion stablecoin that underpins the entire crypto universe. Um, I mean, like the, the people involved in this thing are just amazing. It's yeah. just like you couldn't have created them. You know what I mean? Like the the banker for Tether being the guy who created Inspector Gadget, which I watched as a kid. Like, I mean, <laughs> come on. Like what, what? You know, like where does that come from? Uh, but yeah, I mean, Tether is, you know, systemically important within this whole crypto universe because it's the main source of liquidity for pretty much every trading pair. So Bitcoin, most of Bitcoin's price is not determined by dollars buying Bitcoin. It's determined by Tether buying Bitcoin, which, you know, ostensibly would be the same thing, except for what we've talked about, which is that no one actually knows where their money is, that they're supposedly backing these stable coins that supposedly are worth a dollar. Um, the fact that most of this trading happens in offshore um, unregulated businesses like FTX and Binance um, 
and they clearly have very close relationships with each other. Um, one great example that just came out recently was um, the New York Times uh, report where they got a hold of a, a, a chat that was between all of these different leaders of various crypto exchanges. And one of the and it was between like CZ, a guy who runs Binance and Sam Bankman Fried and others. And, you know, at one point during the collapse of FTX, it appeared that Sam was actually making some moves that could affect the price of Tether. And and CZ actually reached out and said, stop what you're doing. If you wreck Tether, you'll destroy everything. And it's yeah. very interesting, first, that these guys have this coll- this like collusion chat going on between each other. Ostensibly, they're all competitors. Yeah. And, and I think um, I think it was Dimitri who uh, in our last in our uh, podcast who kind of said it was kind of like the uh, the uh, um, Chicago Commission or uh, right. the Lucky Luciano, right? right. Like these guys are all co- competitors, and they will all you know chop each other's heads off if they have the the opportunity and the you know uh, they'll be able to capitalize from it. But at the same time, they're all working together. Well, the the, the chat was called Exchange Coordination, right? I think that was the name yeah. of the chat room. It was Exchange yeah. Coordination? I mean, it's it's. Nuts. Yeah, I mean it's it's literally like the uh what was the was it the meeting in the Appalachians where the uh the all the mob bosses got uh, caught out um collaborating right. or whatever, right? right. Uh, I can't remember the name of that, but it's famous. But anyway, yeah, it's the same thing. They're all working together. Uh it's all coordinated, and Tether is at the absolute center of everything. It's it's the most important to me, it's the most important question. And one of the reasons why, you know, I've spent a lot of time looking at different things throughout, you know, the last year and a half. Um, one of them was Celsius Network, which was like a crypto bank. Another one was FTX. And all of them connect back to Tether very closely. And that's not a coincidence. No, no, no. I, I think that's absolutely right. But let's kick off with FTX. Let's talk about the collapse of FTX. It happened ultimately very, very quickly indeed. And I think there's potentially some lessons there for Binance and for Tether, ultimately, and if they're going to collapse, how they're going to collapse. But just walk us through the collapse of FTX Alameda as you saw it through your eyes, which had been skeptical and which had been digging and which had been finding all this stuff about those companies. Right. So, yeah, uh, I had a very interesting front row seat to the whole thing. Um, so I had been writing, again, I've been focusing a lot on Celsius Network, which went bankrupt several months ago. And they had very close relationship with FTX as well as with Tether. And, you know, in October, I wrote a couple articles digging into that relationship between FTX and Celsius. And it caught the attention of somebody who actually shared a copy of the balance sheet that was subsequently leaked by Coindesk a few days before the article came out. And that was, you know, I had sort of looked into pieces of FTX. I had noticed strange things in the past, like the fact that they never seemed to have a wallet where they stored all their customers' assets was strange. It seemed like the money always just kind of flowed out. And it went places that seemed to be linked more to Alameda than they were to ta- to, to FTX. Although, um, you know, it's hard to see that. Like when, when you're looking at things on on blockchain, what you're looking at is 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 flows of money between different anonymous addresses, and you can yeah. only it's all guilt by association, right? There's occasionally times when you know exactly who you're looking at, you know what you're you know who it is, but a lot of the time you don't. So I I had, had inklings that there was maybe something weird going on. Um, but it wasn't until I got a hold of the, a copy of this balance sheet that just, uh, I laughed. I laughed probably for a good 10 minutes when I saw it because it turned out what they were doing was actually something very similar to what Celsius network had done, which is create a token on, on the blockchain, use it to spin up billions of dollars in value in paper, and then actually borrow real dollars against it. Yeah. And that's what destroyed Celsius. And when I saw that FTX was doing the same thing with even larger size. Um, 
I mean, I, I was in disbelief because, you know, I, I, I thought that there was probably some fraud going on. I mean, I'm a skeptical person given the history of FTX, given their ties to tether, given their ties to everybody else, given that Sam repeatedly basically admitted to bank fraud and running Ponzi schemes throughout in various interviews. I mean, I knew there was something wrong, but when I saw the balance sheet, I knew that things were much worse than I had even imagined. Um, so, you know, a couple of days after Coindesk published their article, I published mine. And the difference between mine and theirs was that I just laid out precisely why these tokens were worth zero dollars. And that that meant that they owed billions of dollars that were backed by nothing and collateral. Yeah. And uh, I think that helped. You know, the Coindesk article had the information and people that knew enough about crypto to interpret that information. Once they read it, they understood what the situation was. But I think the difference was that, you know, spelling it out for people who maybe weren't as familiar with it kind of helped unintentionally speed things up Yeah, yeah. Uh, and kind of led to a little bit of a panic and people started withdrawing funds. And then a couple of days after that was when Mr. Um, uh, CZ decided to dump all of his tokens from FTX yeah. Yeah. and in the process just greatly speed up uh I, I hate calling it a bank run. I don't know what a better term for it is. It wasn't really a bank at all. It was just a big hole in the ground. Um, but it, it basically spurred people to to really panic and try to get their money out. And the combination of of Sam trying to support the price of this token and pay out his customers uh, just destroy them very quickly. And the, I mean, the thing, and I'll, I'll admit it, I didn't realize that the hole was as big as it was, right? Like right. even right. this balance sheet didn't tell us that they had been misappropriating billions of dollars in customer assets. You know, I, I had speculated in my article that maybe some of the or I alluded essentially that maybe they were borrowing money from FTX, but the right. amounts were, I mean, shocking. And the fact that they collapsed as quickly as they did, I never saw that coming. Well, the interesting thing for me as I watched this and I, and I you know, I hadn't I really found out what everybody else found out. I wasn't like you. I wasn't ahead of this thing. But there were so many things that I read and things that I saw that. I, st- I still can't explain, right? That the fact that anybody would look at their balance sheet and and think it was worth anything just <laughs> blows my mind. The fact that all these, you know, the Sequoias of the world, the Temasek's of the world, the Ontario Teachers Pension Plans of the world, the fact that these guys had invested when there were so many red flags, you know, that, that we didn't see in the public. But but clearly, if you're going to invest a hundred million dollars plus into a company. You have access to the data room. You have access to every single thing that you want to see. And frankly, if someone tells you no, you can't see that, you walk away. That's it's it's really simple. Um, why is it? Do you think that that so much was either missed, which seems hard to believe that you could miss this stuff, or ignored by these sophisticated investors? I think it's a combination of of ignored and. It's hard to explain. You know, I, I still don't know exactly what to call it, but... Yeah, F- FOMO met, seems too easy, right? It's, FOMO is just too easy. It's not easy. just that. It's yeah. that for some... Like, like for example, some of the pension funds and the less like... Um, not the, maybe the venture capital, but maybe the second order people who got involved in this. Like Celsius actually also had a, a large pension fund that got involved as well. Um, those are probably more like a FOMO type thing where they they see all these other people making money and they're trying to catch up and they invest in something that they shouldn't be investing in. Um, you know, I've talked to a number of people who are relatively sophisticated investors who still insist that there is value in these tokens. And it's something about, it's something about the fact that there's this market 
assign value to them that that tricks them into thinking that there's something real there when in reality there's nothing there. And it's worth noting, I mean, these, these tokens don't confer anything of value. They don't confer equity. They don't confer, they're not debt instruments. They don't confer any kind of claim on cash flows or anything else. They're literally just bits of code floating around on a blockchain. They mean nothing. Uh, they don't have to be connected to anything. Right. Right. Um, and and yet, for some reason, and that's that's why I've called these things flywheel schemes. That's what my my term for this has been. Because the big, the, the key part of this that makes it unique is that there's also this element of uh, of a supposedly independent market that's assigning value to these tokens. Yeah. Right. So like FTT is trading out there on all these different exchanges and apparently there's this market demand for it. So it must be worth something. And I think that's what a lot of these investors fell for was this idea that, well, there's this independent market. And so if they need to sell these tokens, they could sell them. But in practice, and this was a big part of what I was trying to show was that there, in reality, these markets were, tiny, tiny illiquid markets that were almost entirely controlled, in this case, by FTX, and that if anybody tried to sell with any kind of size, it would crash the price to zero. And it was right. actually, it was, a, it was a mirage. And yeah, it's amazing that so many sophisticated people got tricked. And and to say that it was just FOMO, no, it wasn't just that. Was it just incompetence? No, it's a combination of all of those things. But it's also something about it. It just, it's so strange. Like I still don't know what to call it, but these people legitimately still believe that there are value. There's value in these tokens just because yeah. a number on screen says there is somewhere. Yeah. Well, it's been interesting to me to watch. You know, the CoinDesk article was really kind of the tipping point, and it, and it's been interesting to me that you know in this era of social media, guys like you have access to audiences, right? Let's call you a citizen journalist for the purpose of this part of the conversation. But there are there are tremendous citizen journalists like you doing extraordinary work who can reach an audience. But we're still at that point where, and I think this is part of a broader cycle, where skepticism doesn't reign, trust reigns supreme. And so guys like you, got like Bitfinext, who have extraordinary information and have been contacted by all kinds of insiders to say, look, this is what's going on. Why is it, do you think, that it it still takes a Coindesk to publish that article? And the Coindesk article carries more weight than something that you or Bitfinex, for example, just to name but two, would put out there. Well, I mean, to be fair, uh, my blog is called Dirty Bubble Media, which is sort yeah. of an allusion to SpongeBob. <laughs> uh, so it's sort of tongue in cheek. And I mean, I am, you know, until very recently was entirely anonymous. So no, no, absolutely. And, but I mean, to be, but on the other hand, like, I think I'd establish some credibility in calling other things that had collapsed like Celsius and exactly other, right. other companies that had fallen apart. So, you know, there's, I think it's, yeah, I mean, there's still, there's still a lot of, um, a lot of trust assigned to what's considered mainstream media, although realistically Coindesk, like what, what makes, what would make something mainstream, right? Like if I had a little bit nicer website and I paid a few people to write for me, would I be mainstream then? Like what, what's the, where's the line between mainstream and citizen journalist or whatever you want to call it? Yeah. And that I think gets through the problem because for me, I'm much more interested in what someone like you or someone like Bitfinex has to say about this because we know Coinbase is part of the ecosystem, right? Coinbase has a definite interest ultimately in the crypto ecosystem not coming under tremendous pressure, right? That is in their interest. And I've been amazed. You know, I've I've had conversations with some of the guys like you who've been investigating this stuff and I find those conversations to be 
extraordinarily deep and littered with information that I don't see in mainstream media. And yet, you get called FUD spreaders and all this kind of stuff. Have you found that the people who aren't just kind of all in on the crypto have been much more willing to listen to you, have been much more willing to hear what you have to say? Uh, And is that changing? Have you noticed that changing? So, yeah, it's definitely changing. But, I mean, frankly, no one was listening to me until relatively recently. Right, right. Celsius led to a lot of more people taking me seriously, but um, for a long time it was like screaming into a void. And I and I don't know, you know, my the only fortunate thing here for me is that I didn't discover this stuff like two or three years ago because yeah. I would have gone stark raving mad by now. Yes, yes, yes. To, to yes, not only know it's all a fraud, point. but to watch it grow and to the extent that it did. I mean, uh, somebody like Bitfinex who's been on this tether thing since I mean, yeah. I don't know, 2017 if not before that. Uh, And to watch it go from like a billion dollars to 60 or 70 billion to be calling it a fraud, then be proven right when when they settle with the CFTC and with the New York Attorney General, and then still it keeps going. I mean, yeah, I would would have gone totally crazy by now. So I'm glad that I am relatively late to this party. Um, I don't know. You know, I think it's this is not just true for crypto. It's true for everything, right? Like that's one thing that I never really used social media until I started using Twitter. And whatever else you want to say about it as being a cesspool that it is, there are some incredibly smart people on there who are sharing a lot of very interesting information about everything, right? I mean, you have, you have Jim Chanos, one of the great short sellers of our, you know, time who's, I mean, in addition to a very good accountant who can do some really, I mean, I've learned a ton just by listening to that guy talk in 20 minutes, you learn more about business than you do from reading five textbooks. And this guy's out there just sharing the information for free. Right. I mean, and it's not like he really is like trying to like drive the price of these stocks down. He's just saying, hey, this is why I'm short or or whatever. Like there's a lot of people on there who are doing who are doing the same thing I'm doing, but with probably more consequential stuff. Right. Um, and they don't get listened to. And that doesn't get talked about in the media. Why is that? I mean, like you're right. Uh, Coindesk is owned by DCG, which itself is in some financial problems right now. Uh all of these companies, The Block, which is another big crypto media outlet, turns out that it was receiving tens of millions of dollars essentially directly from FTX. Um, and even like a big thing like Bloomberg Crypto, there's a, I don't know if you've talked to Mark Cajones at all, but um, another yeah, short seller. Friend. who's he's a good friend of mine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He tells a story. He's told a story a few times now. Uh, and yeah, he's a great guy. Uh, he's been fun, fun, to, fun to get to know somebody like him. <laughs> yeah, um, right. But yeah. Uh, What's uh, what's interesting is he was saying that a few months ago, he went to the Bloomberg crypto team with all the information he had about Silvergate and FTX and the fact that there was something very wrong here. And their response was that, you know, he was like, you, you should ask Sam these questions. Why aren't you asking him these questions? They said, well, yeah. if we ask those questions, he won't talk to us anymore. Right. And you think about how how like perverse that is. Right. I always assume journalists were out there trying to like catch the bad guys and expose people and become famous themselves by doing that. But in reality, that's not how it works at all. And I think that they're they're captured to a very large extent, just like the regulators have been captured by, you know, promises of big salaries and donations and all sorts of other things. So it, it's uh, I don't know. It's interesting. I don't know what the I don't know what the solution is or if things are ever going to change. But I think it's a thing we see everywhere. And it's not just true for crypto. Well, you know, that's been my contention is that somewhere out there there's a tipping point where for the journalists there's more to be made by exposing these frauds than by not exposing them. I.e. you can win a Pulitzer Prize, you can make a career, you can, you know, there are all kinds of things you can do. And, and that kind of leads me on to my next question in terms of for you, 
How have things changed since the FTX meltdown? I mean, I, I can imagine your DMs must be a whole different ball game post that. Not not just because I'm sure they're littered with crazy people, but also uh, have you found that there are people now coming forward to you? And you know, I know as I say, Mark's a good friend of mine, and conversations I've had with Mark is it's very similar. Whenever one of these things gets exposed. People come out the woodwork and with with information and hey, listen, you need to do this. You need to follow this guy. Look at this. Have you have you found that to be the case? And if so, where where is it kind of taking you? Uh, it's taken me some interesting places that I haven't been able to publish on yet, simply because I haven't had time. But um, yeah, it, it's it's led me to some interesting people. Let's put it that way. Um, no, not too many insiders though, and I think that's because the things that are left are things where the insiders probably want to keep their mouths shut for various reasons. Um, you scratch the surface of these things and you start finding some very scary people. Yeah. So, uh, you know, who knows, right? And and my speculation has always been with the FTX thing. And I, I know CZ has denied this and I, I'm just speculating when I say this, but I always kind of wondered if he had a hand in that being leaked, right? Because really, if you think about how few leaks there have been in crypto, with all the all the horrible fraud and everything that's been going on, right? Nothing's been leaked. Yeah. Right? Like Tether's never had a leaked balance sheet in all these years. It's like amazing, right? Like they have some pretty good OPSEC going on or something. Uh, or they just keep it very close to the close to the chest. How did it take so long? I mean, the, the balance sheet that uh, Coindesk and I uh, found was that was from like June. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It wasn't like that was new information. That's new information been out there for six months. So it's like I don't know. I, I think it's very interesting, but I, I definitely have met some interesting people since uh, since things have uh, taken a turn here. But that, you know what you said there about the balance sheet and what you said about the leaks kind of brings us to the regulators because you know it, the opacity around all this stuff can be fixed pretty easily with regulation. And you know, I, I, I had a conversation with um, a friend of mine, David Dore, recently, and we talked about why it was taking so long for the regulators to step in and. You know, his contention was that um, this was a, a, an intelligence community thing and they, they were busy mapping money flows and, and there was so much information available to them in the flow of cryptocurrencies around the world that they were just, you know, they, they, they didn't really care much about retail investors losing money. They wanted to know where this money was going to and where it was coming from. But the, the collapse of FTX and the supposed million creditors changes things in terms of forcing regulators to say, right, well, listen, we can't ignore this anymore. Do you think that's what happens next? And if so, what does happen when the regulators are forced into action? So I partially agree with that assessment. Um, I Well, I mean, it's obviously, again, this is speculation, right? Like, I don't know what the FBI is doing. I don't know what the no, CIA so is doing. But And if you, if you did, you wouldn't tell me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um but, you know, I did write an article a few weeks ago where you know, I, I like, like I said, I like fraud and I, I read about all sorts of, you know, historical frauds and things. And one that's always fascinated me was a company called the Bank of Commerce and Credit International. Yeah, BCCI. BCCI. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. I was in London when all yeah. that blew up. Yeah. And so the, the parallels between FTX and Tether and BCCI are amazing. Like the level of of correlation. I mean, everything from uh, this BCCI was, uh, you know, basically the long story short of it was this, it was this international bank with ties to the Saudis and uh, 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 United Arab Emirates. And it turned out it was basically laundering money for everyone from uh, Medellin cartel to uh, 
uh, the Marcos dictator to uh, Noriega for the and for the CIA. Actually, a big part of what they were doing was laundering money for the Iran Contra affair, which is a very yeah. you know interesting turn of events, right? And this company was operating for like 20 years. And for a good portion of that history, everybody, basically everybody in banking and in like intelligence committees knew it was a, a fraud and knew that they were engaging in illegal activities. You know, this bank, you know, secretly bought a bank in the United States, just like FTX did. Uh, they made, uh, they basically bought off a number of different politicians, either by hiring them as, as, as uh, employees or consultants, or in the case of Jimmy Carter, the president, uh, they donated a bunch of money to his causes and used let him use their plane to the point where the where the founder of this bank was actually close friends with Carter and they actually would hang out together and Carter came to visit him when he was sick in the hospital. Um, and it turned out that this thing you know collapsed because it was a massive fraud and eventually could no longer be kept under wraps. And the thing that's interesting is that number one, it was allowed to survive for so long and you could say, oh well, maybe it's because the I mean they obviously the government knew about this. they knew that it was, all these people are using this as a crime, but you notice that none of the people using it ever were prosecuted. Right, exactly. Right? Uh, and really the people that went down for it was a relatively small group of people. And there's always been a lot of uh, information alleged that the vast majority of the crime and, and problems that were happening at BCCI were never really uncovered or investigated in any level of detail because they touched too many interesting and powerful people. And my concern and this is why I talked about a little bit with Dimitri. My concern is that there's also that element that maybe Tether and these other components have been useful for certain people who have pull. And I mean, we see it with FTX, like, you know, it, if just if a drug lord walked into D.C. with a bag full of cash and started handing it out, he would have a hard time getting as close to politicians as Sam did. And right. yeah, Sam was able to get very, very, very close operating something when he admitted publicly was a Ponzi scheme. How did he get so close? I mean, yeah. I don't think just money gets you there. I, I don't know. Maybe it does. If, if that's true, then I guess things are just incredibly corrupt. But um, I don't know. I think there's I think there's an element of that. And I think there's an element maybe of law enforcement surveilling this as well. But I guess we'll find out. All we do know is we've known that Tether was committing fraud for a very long time and they've admitted to it and that they've continued to flourish. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the the line of red flags stretches all the way along the beach for Tether. So, I mean, it's just it's just one thing after another with that. To, you know, to the point where it seems so corrupt that people have kind of stopped even paying attention to it. Because it's like, well, what's the point? Right. It just escalates. Yeah, yeah. It's like you get desensitized. Yeah, yeah. But but okay. So let, let's talk about how things have changed in the wake of FTX. Let's talk about the the key players left. We'll we'll save Tether till last. Um, because as I say, it feels to me like nothing changes with that thing until one day it's all just going to go up in a puff of smoke. But but let's talk about Binance because that seems to me now, you know, I've, I've described the way I see this as there's just three legs left on this stool and they are Binance, Tether and DCG. And if any one of those three goes, that's it. The stool is going to fall over. I think if any one of those last three remaining behemoths goes. Let's, let's talk about Binance first. What's the current state of Binance and how has the FTX uh, debacle perhaps changed the way Binance is not just viewed inside and outside the crypto community, but how it's viewed by regulators? Hmm. Well, so the first thing I will say, and this is kind of going back to something you were talking about a little while ago, which is how has the attitude of the crypto, if you want to call it a community, how has it changed in general? And people are definitely a lot more skeptical than they were before, 
right? People in general are now demanding things like, show me where the money is. How much do you owe people? And people are actually going out and doing investigations and yeah. things like I've been doing for the last year and a half, but actually doing it and finding some interesting stuff. So for the start of it now, Binance has to face a much more skeptical audience in general, um, which is a problem for them. Um, you know, they've attempted to kind of calm people's nerves by doing things like releasing what they call proof of reserves yeah. reports, which say how much assets they have um, in various crypto wallets. And that's great, except they never will tell you how much they owe people. So it's kind of useless. Um, what we can also see on the blockchain is that they are saying, well, here, this money is the money that we have in our reserves, but it appears they're commingling corporate assets with customer assets for certain. They've essentially admitted to doing that just by how they've moved money around. They're commingling funds between customers, corporate, and funds that are supposed to be backing stable coins on their own blockchain, the Binance Smart Chain or whatever it is they call it these days. So they're clearly not managing funds in a way that's very uh, safe. We know that for certain. We know that according to Reuters, and I believe this is accurate, that they are under investigation by the United States government for, uh, at the very least, market manipulation, sanctions, violations, money laundering, and potentially tax evasion. I'm sure they'll throw that in there. Um, if you look at how they do business with uh, banking, and, and they have lots of front companies that appear and disappear in various interesting jurisdictions, uh, you could assume that they're likely engaging in something along the lines of wire fraud, just like FTX was. Yeah. Um, and their founder is a ghost who doesn't live in any one place for a very long time and basically lives out of a suitcase. They have no board of directors. They have no governance that we know of. We don't even know really who owns the company or who's in charge besides the guy who calls himself CZ, who is on Twitter saying he's the guy who runs it. But really, we don't actually really know who runs this thing or even what it is. It's the agglomeration of dozens of companies, just like FTX was operating semi-legitimately, uh, doing whatever they can to keep regulators off of their trail. Um, but the similarities between Binance and FTX, I mean, you know, Binance, just like FTX, had a, has a U.S. exchange called Binance yep. U.S. Mm -hmm. um, I recently showed that that exchange sends over well over a billion dollars of customer funds from U.S. to the offshore Binance exchange, which as far as I can tell, is a violation of Binance's ban on doing business in the United States. Um, it appears that company is a front for Binance to do business in the United States illegally. Um, so Binance is basically, <laughs> I mean, to, to call it a criminal conspiracy, I don't think would stretch the bounds of uh, bounds of propriety too much. So so but what does it take then? What does it take for for Binance to meet the same fate as FTX? Because... You know, it has similar problems. We haven't seen the balance sheet, but one can imagine without, as you say, it being too much of a stretch, that their balance sheet looks very similar in terms of composition to that of FTX in that there will be a whole lot of tokens that notionally have a market value in the billions based on you know, a few hundred thousand of them that trade, and that's used as collateral for who knows what. We've seen uh, commingling of funds, which is the same as FTX, and we've seen... Importantly, the precedent set by FTX. And one would think that that together would be enough to take Binance down. And yet it's stuck in there. We had CZ on uh, CNBC. And, and look, if you can say something that makes Becky quick roll her eyes in a theatrical way, like he did when you know, she asked if, you know, could you handle 5 billion of withdrawals? <laughs> he said, we'll let our lawyers handle that. 
I mean, you've got a CNBC anchor rolling their eyes at you. I mean, what does it take for this thing to go down? It's hard to say. Because ultimately, we do know that they have tens of billions of dollars in assets, including tens of billions of dollars in stable coins that are issued by a U.S.-based company called Paxos that are branded as Binance USD. Yeah. Um, those are, as far as I can tell, backed by real dollars. Like there, there are treasuries that are held by this Paxos company in New York that are backing these dollars, and it seems like they actually do exist. So they do have billions and billions of dollars of real money. Um but yeah, the question of how much they owe people is a good one. And the question, too, is who do they owe the money to? Because some of it's retail. But who knows who else is doing business on yeah. their platform and how much of it might be, say, I mean, CZ has his own market-making firms that he's admitted to being a shareholder in. How much of that those funds are his, right? I mean, somebody has to be making money here, right? I mean, like, all these retailers are getting ripped off. It's like somebody has to end up with the money. I don't know who, but it must be somebody. Um, so I see there's a couple of different ways this goes down. One of them is that they are insolvent. That they do not have enough funds to cover uh, customer withdrawals and withdrawals from institutional clients, and that at some point they are no longer able to meet those withdrawals and they shut down. Um, it's definitely a possibility, and we've already seen signs that they're under strain. Um, for example, they've had to pause withdrawals of USDC, yeah. which is the dollar coin or um, issued by a company called Circle based Circle, in the United yeah. States. Um, they ran out of that for a while and then had to essentially, it looks like, sell a, basically uh, – burn a couple billion dollars worth of their own stable coin and then in order to buy the circle stable coin, which has to involve some very interesting banking relationships. Yes. Uh, and Silvergate is not the only one that's going to be in trouble here. Okay. Uh, that's all I, that's all I know for certain. Um, so they, we already know they're kind of having like uh, what somebody has referred to as rolling insolvency, kind of like rolling blackouts um, with different tokens. There's a mismatch between what they owe people and what they actually have. Um, so one possibility is they can't pay, pay people back. The other possibility is maybe they are solvent. Maybe they have enough. Um, my issue is that even if they do have enough money, the regulatory pressures they face in a multinational like effort to take this guy down, it won't matter if they have the money or not because uh, they're going to be banned from doing business everywhere that uh, customers are, and that's going to be a problem for them. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, even if like it's like even if they have the money, if it gets locked up by the FBI when they shut down Binance, I mean, if they get a hold of the keys to those wallets, yeah. your money's locked up until they decide to give it back to you. I mean, look at like the Mount Gox thing, right? Like that th those funds have been locked for years. I mean, they're there, but they're still locked for years and years and years. That can happen. Um, so I mean, those those are the two, I think the two possibilities. Either that or the third possibility is it turns out everything is just super corrupt. CZ pays a fine stops doing business in the U.S. and keeps doing business elsewhere. And that's that could happen, too. It's possible he gets away with it. Yeah, I mean, there is there is a fourth option here, which I, I put the least uh, probability on coming true, and that is that everything's fine, right? I mean, we, we, we mustn't forget that there is a chance, no matter how slim, that, hey, everything they've told us is true. I, I say that with a smile on my face and with a pinch of salt, but it, 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 it's worth hey, maybe saying. Maybe it is, yeah. Yeah. But, okay, so, so let's move on to DCG. Uh, and Grayscale and the Bitcoin Trust. Give me an assessment of that because, again, this is a this is another one that has a, I think, a much stronger cloak of legitimacy around it in terms of mm -hmm. the the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. When you've looked through all this and you've looked at this from your perspective, describe what Grayscale DCG looks like to you. Um, in a phrase, a smoking crater. Um, in more detail, 
So DCG, their digital currency group, was a conglomerate of several different companies, mostly operating within the crypto space. And the two big ones that really seem to have the most presence were Genesis Trading and uh, Grayscale. Yeah. So Grayscale offers this Bitcoin trust, which is a, a publicly traded uh, trust that you know is regulated by the SEC. They off- also offer a number of other similar trusts with Ethereum. Um, they have like at least a dozen. I don't remember all of them, but there's a bunch of smaller cryptocurrencies as well. Um, and that's basically a cash machine for them because they, I can't remember what the fee is. It's, it's like 2% a year yeah, or something. Yeah, and, AUM. Yeah. So they literally collect 2% a year and it's not based on market value. It's based on the actual like uh, AUM. So uh, the Grayscale Trust or the Bitcoin Trust, for example, trades at like over a 40% discount now. But so in practice, that means that they're they're really getting like a I don't know like a four or five percent annual yeah, yeah. Uh, fee on this thing, which is insane. Um, so they make a bunch of money off of that. The goal ultimately was to transition those to being ETF products instead of trust products. But the SEC took a look at that and said, "Heck no," because uh, all these markets are totally rigged, and it is worth you know. There are a few examples of regulatory uh, filings that are worth reading, but it's worth reading the SEC denials of these various applications to start Bitcoin ETFs because it really does spell out and shows you that the SEC knows exactly what's going on. It spells out exactly why these companies are not allowed to transition these to exchange-traded funds. Uh, and it, it's literally a laundry list that includes Tether. Um, so that tells you a lot. Um, so anyway, long story short, DCG has this grayscale thing that makes a lot of money. And then the other big component of their, their business was this Genesis, which was a prime broker um, offering a variety of services and then also offering lending services. So they would they would take uh, customers' money and then lend it out. Essentially, again, part of their prime, prime broker services. Um, and it turned out that Genesis had some bad investment decisions. Among those was lending over a billion dollars to a company called Three Arrows Capital. Three Arrows, yeah. Yeah. which turned out to be a massive, uh, probably Ponzi scheme of some sort, basically another smoking crater. And what's interesting, actually, is uh, work that was done by a um, a really smart guy who goes uh, by the name Data Finnovation, who writes a blog on Medium that has some excellent, some of the best work that's been done in crypto, in my opinion. Um, and one of his one of his things, he looked at the relationship between Genesis and uh, Grayscale and Three Arrows Capital. And uh, did some very interesting analyses looking at uh, the SEC filings and filings from the Three Rows Capital stuff. And this was before, well before DCG was um, thought to be in serious financial trouble. And what he showed was that there was a very interesting relationship where it appears that Genesis may have actually been lending 3AC the Bitcoin to create Grayscale Bitcoin trust uh, issues shares out of. There was like a circle there. And they basically what they were doing was like propping up their own their own in their own trust product, and what they were doing is because for a while this grayscale this grayscale product was trading at a premium to Bitcoin. Yeah. So there are a lot of different places. BlockFi is another example of a company that collapsed because, in part, they were using this "quote unquote" arbitrage to make money off of. Uh, but for a while, this this premium was driving a lot of uh, the success in various Bitcoin uh, trading schemes. Um, but long story short, Genesis lost up uh, lost its shirt betting uh, borrowing or lending to these guys, and then on top of it, it turns out that the parent company, DCG, was borrowing large amounts of money from Genesis itself to then do things like buy back its own stock yep. and invest in venture capital, uh, totally illiquid venture capital investments. Now, to me, that's totally inappropriate. And the idea that you have to remember that these the funds that they're borrowing are not like, they aren't locked. They aren't like five-year, you know, the person's deposit the money, you have to pay them back in five years. These are like customer-facing uh 
uh, money that that came from, among other things, the Gemini Crypto Exchange, where the customer could come back at any time and say, "I want my money back." Right. And instead of instead of investing in things that were liquid, they chose to buy back their own stock, which was totally illiquid. And they invested in a bunch of uh, venture capital stuff that is probably worth close to zero now. And so, long story short, they ended up massively in the hole, both to their customers and to this Thrones Capital thing. And the only thing keeping them afloat right now, as far as I can tell, is this grayscale fee that really shouldn't even exist. So they're now facing a lot of pressure to essentially liquidate the trust and sell. The only way to, to cash investors out, they actually have to sell the Bitcoin based on right, how the exactly. trust is structured. So, yeah, DCG is a major, major problem for the crypto crypto world. If they have to sell any significant portion of those assets in these trusts, it will it will have it will put serious pressure on the on the markets for Bitcoin and other crypto assets. If they declare bankruptcy, um, a lot of their counterparties will be exposed, and a lot of their counterparties are going to go down. Um, so it's it's a major kind of a secret his systemic uh, systemic risk within the crypto economy yeah. that's now kind of revealed itself. And, and is there a clock ticking on this? Because it's felt like there has been since FTX went under. Um, you know, the headlines in the immediate wake of FTX around both DCG, Genesis, Grayscale, and Binance, frankly, were all, uh-oh. I mean, this this thing is going to blow, and these guys owe this much money, and unless they can raise X. And we saw, you know, emails, supposedly, which were being sent out to try and raise mm-hmm. money for Genesis. But that was a month ago. And I know it's the holiday season. I know people kind of switch off a little bit. But... The clock has to still be ticking. Where, where are we in terms of any kind of sense of urgency whether these guys are running up against the clock? I mean, the the only example I can draw from is Celsius Network, which froze customer withdrawals on June 12th, 2022. They didn't file for bankruptcy for another month. And in that period of time, they moved billions of dollars in assets. Yeah. So that's just one example where yeah, these things can be dragged out for a very long time. Um, it seemed like DCG was doing everything they could to try and prevent Grayscale from being liquidated because that's their that's their cash cow. That's what they need to survive. Um, but I mean, everything I've heard and everything I have read strongly suggests that they can't pay the money back and that they're gonna they're gonna be facing a reckoning pretty soon here. Um, whether that's maybe like a targeted bankruptcy of Genesis itself or the entire company going down, I don't know what the answer is, but. Um, I mean, they can only delay the inevitable for so long. And I know there's a number of creditor groups that are kind of knocking, trying to knock down their doors to get an answer. So I think in the next few weeks, we find out what happens to DCG. I mean, I, I don't see how they can extend it much longer than that. Right. So let's come full circle back to Tether then, because you know, there is a period of time during which if Tether is just a massive fraud and they just print these things at will and they don't have the assets to back them, there is a period of time during which Tether can ride to the rescue and they can print Tether and use them to plug holes as long as people don't demand the fiat back, right? That's where the problem comes, if people actually want to cash out. But if, as it, if, as FTX kind of demonstrated, that people in that ecosystem seem to be, at various points in time, happy to receive tokens that have a notional value, and if we assume that, everybody that we've talked about in this conversation has an extremely vested interest in keeping this thing going. Is there a chance that Tether gets used to plug the holes and people are made good and made whole in Tether, even if there's no dollars to back it? Well, so here's the thing. I don't think that Tether is unbacked. I think they have every dollar they claim to have 
almost certainly not. Um, and if the money, the money may be commingled with, within various other, it might not be just their money. Let's put it that way. Uh, so I do think they have a lot of money. I mean, they probably have tens of billions of dollars, whether they have the full amount or not is unknown. Um, the fact that they can't show anybody where it is, is instructive. And it tells us that at the very least, there are some interesting sources for those funds and some interesting people holding onto those funds for them. Um, so I don't think that they can print their way out of this because at some point somebody needs dollars to pay people. Right. Right. Like eventually you need real money and you can only paper over it with, with fake nonsense on the blockchain for so long. Um, people have to accept the tether and you know, eventually it's kind of the rats fleeing a sinking ship kind of thing, right? Like if you're say Binance and Tether wants to print tethers to bail out Bitfinex and you know that those tethers are worth zero and you're in very rough financial shape, when do you say, I'm not going to take these anymore? Right? Right. So, so that's the question is how much longer they can do that for if there's no real money backing it. Um, I don't know. I don't think that they can, I don't think they can get out of it that way. Okay. If you had to handicap the the three we've spoken about, or or even if you want to throw anybody else in the mix, which one are you watching most closely to be the kind of next domino to topple? Well, I think that being legitimate is actually a detriment in this ecosystem. So probably DCG would go first because they actually have real legal entities that have to like, you know, do things like pay people back. Uh the good thing about operating as a you know multinational uh, ghost company is that it's a lot harder to pin you down and force you to pay people back. So um, I suspect that they go down before anybody. But I mean, my predictions are only as good as the next guys. Frankly, like sure. who no, knows? I that. We're, we're, who yeah, knows? No, I mean, we yeah, exactly right. Everyone is at. I mean, look at it this way. Like DCG is a great example. I, I spoke with someone who was up working at a fund that was looking to short tether a number of months ago. And I remember I was talking to them. I'm like, my problem with, with I've never traded crypto. And one of the reasons among thinking it's, it's just like morally repugnant and garbage uh, is that the counterparty risk is off the charts, right? Like the fact is you're dealing with people that you can't trust at all. And if anybody goes down, there's no regulations to protect you. It's not like trading with Merrill Lynch or something. Yeah. Um, not that you can trust Merrill Lynch either, but at least there's, you know, regulators somewhere there and there's some guarantees that you get your money back if things go south. Um, and their response was, well, we're going to do it through Genesis because Genesis is sound, right? And Genesis is okay. We Everybody knows Genesis is good. So that they're our counterparty. Everything will be okay. So uh, the fact is that the, the trusted counterparties, which were Genesis, uh, FTX had this huge public persona that no one else had, right? I mean, they... Names on the umpire's jerseys. That's the mm-hmm. thing that I can't get over. And and on stadiums and him testifying in front of Congress. Um, those companies, companies that had this, this respect, suddenly being shown to be, you know, nothing but massive debt bubbles that were oftentimes engaging in fraud in the case of at least of FTX. Um, that destroys confidence. And that's not something that can be brought back easily. And that's why it's unpredictable to determine who goes down next because Loss of confidence can affect everyone in the crypto space. Anybody can go down now. As you've kind of looked into these companies, have you found anything, anyone, any entity that has kind of piqued your attention that people aren't looking at? Are there any more potential dominoes out there that people aren't really focusing on at the moment because all the attention's directed at the companies we've talked about so far? I mean, I've been focusing a lot on Binance lately. 
because how can I not? Right. I mean, it's <laughs> well, and the thing is, so, so the thing to remember is that it, it appears too, is that like Binance is not only, you know, just an exchange for people to come trade on. It appears a lot of other exchanges do their trading on Binance, yeah. right? Like Binance US sending all these customer assets to Binance. Almost certainly what that is, is them essentially executing the trades on Binance's main exchange and then sending the, sending whatever coins back or whatever. Crypto.com appears to do the same thing. Um, I think Huobi does the same thing. I think a bunch of these other exchanges are doing the same thing. And so it's all one big mess. You know, there's no, it's just, it's like pulling threads on a, a big ball of like, of lint or something. Like it's, right. they're all, they're all part of the same mess. And so knowing who goes down next or like who you even focus on is, it's like impossible because it's really, it's just like one big blob of, of conflicted conflicts of interests and secret deals and all sorts of crazy stuff going on. I think one guy who's really interesting and who I'm learning more about lately is Justin Sun, mm -hmm. uh, the guy who runs Poloniex and, uh, and Huobi and Tron. Yeah. And uh, that is a fascinating individual who seems to operate on the edges of the law throughout his entire career. And I think he's kind of critical to the whole ecosystem in some ways. And I think we're going to learn more about him in the coming months. That sounds like a conversation for another day. Well, listen, before we wrap, what's what's next for you? Because, you know, you you have a career and you have a hobby and your hobby is kind of taken over your life in the last <laughs> year and a half or so. What's next for you, James? I don't know yet. I'm trying to decide that right now. Um, I have a lot of fun with this, so I don't think I want to stop. Um, I mean, the, the question is obviously crypto, in my opinion, probably won't exist at least in the same form in, in a year or so. Question is, what do you write about next? But um, I think that there, you know, like we talked about earlier, I think there's an appetite out there for outsiders who think about things carefully and do the homework before they talk about something. And that in a way that the the traditional media is not satisfying. And I think yeah. that there's an opportunity for people like me to kind of build something out of that. So I don't know. I think I'm going to start talking about more things that are interest me, maybe not just crypto, but kind of pivoting from there, but we'll see. Fantastic. Well, listen, let everybody know where they can follow you um, and they can read your work because it's uh, it's uniformly excellent and I recommend it to everybody listening. I appreciate that. Um, so I write on Substack at Dirty Bubble Media um, and then my my Twitter account is at Mike Burgersberg, which also the, the title of that is Dirty Bubble Media as well. But that's the main places that I write. Now, now, just spell Burgersberg for people because there are, there are three or four ways this <laughs> could be with U's and E's in different places. Uh, just like just like a burger, so burger b u r g e r s, uh, uh, b u r g. See, I even so like forgot so what so I was it's saying. Double U's. It's double U's. Okay, there's no. It's e like in the it's like boat. so. It's a it's a spoof on Mike uh, Mike Bloomberg because I was reading Bloomberg when I created the name. So. Burgers back. All right, listen, um, uh, James. It's been fascinating. I'm going to hold you to come back and talk about Justin Sun when when he has his day in the sun. I guess at the one of a, of a slightly less corny pun but uh but until then listen my thanks to you for doing this i know it's late there i know you've had a long day at work so i really appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation with me and um and let's do it again soon it absolutely it was a lot of fun thanks james goodbye well there you have it folks dirty bubble media uh, at mike burgersberg that's burgersberg burger like the hamburger and burg like a shortened hamburger i can't recommend james's work highly enough uh you know it, it's an interesting space to be in um, and as I said to him off air, guys like James uh, and Bitfinex and a bunch of these guys who are doing this work and digging into a, a lot of these things and exposing 
some of the stuff that goes on are doing a really valuable service and, and people with vested interest will will you know tell everybody they're spreading fire and they're doing all these awful things but for me you know I'm always interested in hearing what people have to say when they don't necessarily make anything out of being right they're just trying to bring things to light we, we know where the conflicts of interest are on the other side of the ledger um, but some of these independent guys are doing great work so I would urge you to follow Dirty Bubble Media, to read Mike's work, subscribe to him, um, and follow him on Twitter at Mike Burgersberg. That's it from me for another episode. I will be back with another guest in the very near future. Until then, a very happy new year to you. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.